0: Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life-balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayers. Well, hello. Welcome back to Ayers on the Road. We are always excited to talk to you, and thank you for joining us today.
1: What a fun thing. Every, every week to just get to sit back, think about our families, about our kids, about our marriage, Sometimes there's a lot of worries in there, a lot of concerns, but always a lot of love.
0: And a lot of stories. <laughs> a lot of
1: stories, yeah. We're pretty excited today. We just had our second COVID shot.
0: Yes, we are shot.
1: We are shot.
0: Twice. And it uh, feels good right now, but it was just like an hour ago. We may be laying on the floor.
1: <laughs> I had a, My hour. face felt like it was pinching up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a a weird side effect. Really
0: weird side effect.
1: (laughs) Anyway, we hope all of you are well and doing doing good within your families, as good as can be expected. Whenever, whenever someone asks Linda, "How are all the kids?" What do you say?
0: (laughs) Um, They're all fine except for the one that's in trouble.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The ones in crisis. (laughs) Now, you uh, long-term listeners know that we've been almost a year now. We've been telling stories stories about different families about our own family different parts of the world different experiences all with the connection to marriage and family and the things that we love but we're making a little shift now and we're it's kind of a dramatic shift actually linda because we're going from focus on stories to a focus on data now that doesn't sound very
0: (laughs) Uh appealing but when i
1: say data what i mean is there's there's so many good Statistics and findings now about the benefits of families and the benefits of com- committed marriages and committed parenting on children, and it's not we don't just guess at it. There's there's numbers that explain it, and it makes it really interesting. And we we have a dear friend at the University of Virginia, a wonderful guy named Bradford Wilcox, who heads an organization called the Institute of Family Studies, and we love it, don't we, Linda?
0: Yes, he's amazing. The, the, he also has nine children. He has nine, nine children. children. But I think about <laughs> he's a good four Catholic. of them were adopted. We yeah, had yeah. breakfast not too long ago with um, <clears throat> one of his um, children, yeah, his teenagers, yeah. uh, a beautiful, beautiful black, black
1: boy. boy It was w- really wonderful. He's a great guy. And so we're going to... We're going to talk to you about an article that appeared in Family Studies this week and it's written by a fellow named Brendan Chase and it has a really intriguing title. We should have mentioned this right at the top of the show, Linda, because everyone would have not even thought about tuning out. Um, The title is From Weird Monogamy to Informal Polygamy. Now that ought to get your Ooh, attention. Oh, that gives
0: you the shivers. <laughs> oh my goodness. But
1: let me tell you what WEIRD means. It's, a, it's an acronym and it, it means Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. That's, so there's a demographic segment of people that are designated by, this, by, by the WEIRD, W-I-E-R-D, um, acronym. And and it means Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Now here's the interesting thing to start off with. That's the demographic that is doing the best right now in the world as far as getting married and staying married and having children and being devoted to those children.
0: Well, now you're not saying democratic as in a party.
1: No, 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 of course not. That's, they they yeah. live in democratic societies. Right. They live in free, free yeah. countries. Yeah. And, and and that's, to start off with, pretty interesting because if you go back a generation or two, the most family-centered people were, were middle-class or, or lower middle-class people who went to church. They were blue-collar people who went to church and practiced religion and got married and stayed married that has really shifted now and part of it is because of the demo- because of the economic situation in our country and much of the world many of those who live on a little lower economic scale what we sometimes would call blue collar actually don't feel like they can afford marriage anymore. And it's a tragedy. Uh,
0: Well, I know in England, they're taxed when they're married. I mean, it is a great disadvantage financially. Well,
1: they're trying to solve that in this country, country, the thing called the marriage tax. But the ones who are statistically, the, the families that are staying together the longest where the commitment to marriage is strongest are again, weird, Western educated, industrialized, which rich, and democratic. And so what we're talking about is college-educated people, mostly secular, not particularly religious. But what we love about this is that these are people who have just decided that married with children in committed households is the best and most happy way to live.
0: Yeah, which is good to hear. They
1: haven't been told it necessarily by their religion. Much of our speaking is to Young, um, well, YPO, Young Presidents Organization, or EO, which is um, Entrepreneurs Association, or WPO, World Presidents Organization. So these, these are groups all over the world that, by definition, are well, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And well, they
0: fall into that.
1: And into most of category. them are not yeah. religious. But they are really committed. What would you say, Linda? Well,
0: I wouldn't say most of them are not religious. We do not talk about religion. Well, I mean, when it's we do not, speak, a, but I think yeah. most of them are dedicated, and I think half of them are church-going people. But anyway, what do we like about, we about them so
1: much? What would you, how would you say that? I mean, because this is a group. This is a groups we love to speak to.
0: Well, um, they're upwardly mobile. They um, are smart. They know what they are doing. They several of them have been through several companies as, as CEOs. Uh, the entrepreneurs, of course, are. Um, or just keep going from one to the next company that they're doing. Serial entrepreneurs. Serial entrepreneurs. And so it really is a, a fun group. There. They're so interesting. And they're, they're ready for new ideas. They, they want
1: to be the best. They, they want to be, wanna the, be best the best at parenting. They want to be the best at marriage and so on. But let's get into this article for a minute. And you'll, you'll, you'll find this extremely interesting. There's an anthropologist named Joseph Heinrich who has he's actually the one that coined this term weird for Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic people. And and he says that his studies indicate that these this demographic is psychologically and even physiologically different from the rest of the world. For example, their, their data shows that those who are weird. And again, remember Dear, the acronym don't say it again. OK, that <laughs> demographic. They're they're individualistic in their thinking rather than collectivist. They're more disposed to impersonal rather than interpersonal prosociality. In other words, they they do their own thing. They're, they're disposed more to guilt rather than shame. That's that would be interesting. an interesting That's really thing to interesting. talk about, yeah the positive side of it. And and his new book, Heinrich's new book, is called The Weirdest People in the World, with W-I-E-R-D capitalized. Oh,
0: I bet that sells a lot of books. <laughs> People are always curious about weird.
1: And it, 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 this book attempts to explain the origins of this particular divergence from of the West from the rest of society, so to speak. So let us give you a few highlights. Um, Heinrich essentially says that in medieval times, the church, the Christian church essentially, um, had a marriage plan or a marriage norm which gradually restricted and even eliminated such traditional widespread practices as marrying your cousin, sort of inbreeding, Got the church was the one to, to try to stamp that out, to get rid of that. And perhaps most important, to outlaw and get rid of polygamy. Now, when you hear the word polygamy, a lot of you listening say, oh, that he's referring to, to, to Mormon polygamists. But, but let me give you an interesting fact. Um, Heinrich emphasizes that around 90% of human societies historically, have practiced some form of polygamy. Wow. Isn't that interesting?
0: I did not realize that.
1: So, so it's not isolated to one group and furthermore, what's really interesting about it is that, uh, the reason that has been practiced in so many societies is because polygamy is very useful to social forms. If your top priority is producing heirs for elite families.
0: Interesting. You know, when we were in the Middle East, we um, we were smack dab in the middle of where polygamy was not rampant but practiced. Uh, you know, it was totally normal, totally legal. The people we were speaking to um, were interesting because they were just bright, wonderful people with quite a bit of money, and. Uh, they, I said, well, is polygamy happening here? And they said, oh, you know, we could marry somebody else if we wanted to. But the law is that you have to provide exactly the same amount for every wife, that she has access to exactly the same amount of money and property and all that. And, he said, and they just said, we're not up for that. We'd rather just stick to one person. And actually, they did have really good relationships.
1: Well, and so, you know, you make the good point, Linda, that polygamy still exists in a lot of forms today, but historically, keep that in mind, 90% of human societies over the course of history have had some kind of polygamy going on. And, and the problem, the, the unfortunate side effects of polygamy is that it encourages elite men to take multiple wives which creates a surplus of low status men who can't marry and who are often left frustrated and adrift. So these are men with little to lose and and they they're far more likely to commit crimes or take wild risks than are married men. Married men, this all the studies show a married man has social ties and either children or prospects for children that gives him a stake in the future. So he becomes more responsible. He becomes more loyal. He becomes he, he he tries to practice fidelity and so on. Whereas in in a polygamous society, uh, a lot of the opposite effects go on. So going back to the church, even in the
0: monogamous,
1: yeah, yeah, the monogamous is you know is is drawn to he has a stake in the future. He has children. Oh, he becomes okay. responsible. But let's go back again to the medieval church where they're trying to eliminate cousin marriage and polygamy and other forms and here's what's interesting in times these reforms essentially transformed Europe from a collection of tribes war, war oriented tribes uh, which were run by extended kinship in a society of, of you know little tribes and roving bands and so on and Europe was transformed because of the elimination of polygamy and cousin marriage and other things into a society of nuclear families interacting with impersonal markets and voluntary associations. So the, the way society works in the Western world sprung from the medieval church getting rid of polygamy, getting rid of cousin marriage, emphasizing monogamy which brought about all these good social and economic results.
0: That is really interesting. Um, these people are not—I think they're really good Christians, but I don't think they're associated to any religion. But it is fascinating to hear that.
1: You mean the ones we speak to so often? Well, no, the yeah.
0: people that wrote these articles.
1: Oh, 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 oh! No, they're Christian. They're they're strongly That's what I'm Christian. Saying. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and,
1: and so Heinrich is saying monogamous marriage is what encourages men to focus their time and energy on supporting one woman and their few children. And it also, this is, this is data again, Linda, it shifts men's physiology as well as their psychology. It actually reduces testosterone levels. A committed man living in, in monogamy, taking care of his family, is actually has enough less testosterone testosterone He's less inclined to be promiscuous how about that
0: oh my goodness well you're talking to a woman that just finished reading a book by Nylan McBain called pioneering the vote which is about women's suffrage which last year was the 100th anniversary and it was so fascinating there's polygamy was going on in the church and We'll I will, I will talk a little bit more about this in the second half because it, it was astonishing, the things that I learned.
1: We're trying to think what to call this episode, and I think we're going to call it The Virtues of Monogamy. But we'll take a brief break. We'll be right back with what I think is really an interesting topic.
0: Welcome back to Iyer's On The Road. Here's Richard and Linda Iyer. and we're back um talking about polygamy
1: well <laughs> we're talking about monogamy <laughs> I,
0: I just did that to catch your attention just in case you missed the say the first half but it really is interesting this is fascinating because you've read this article but i have read this book and we're not going to get into polygamy and the mormons and all that because that was an era that was to be reckoned with but um it was fascinating to see um and my i have a grandfather who married four wives and I'm from a family of polygamists and it really is so interesting the difference it makes
1: so so I think we're gonna call end up calling this show the as I said the virtues of monogamy but we're gonna do something at the end of the show that that is not in this article it's not data-driven it's just our personal feeling about the the, the number one greatest benefit of monogamy is this sort of synergistic oneness that can form between one man and one woman. This would not be a possibility in other forms of relationships or marriage. We'll, we'll get to that, but let me let me read you a little more from, from Heinrich, who we started quoting earlier. So, monogamous marriage both encourages men to focus their time and energy on supporting one woman and their few children, and it actually shifts both their psychology and their physiology, like we said. And in, and this is what reduces crime, violence, and zero-sum thinking, and it promotes a broader trust, more long-term investing, more sort of steady economic accumulation. So, in effect, monogamy represents a powerful means of domesticating male promiscuity and aggression.
0: Wow, who would have thought of that? Uh, that's amazing.
1: Societies that are centrally concerned with the welfare of women this is important whenever you find in the world a society that that is clearly and centrally concerned with the welfare of women and especially children they couldn't ask for a more potent social technology than monogamy because it's what promotes all these things by by definition and so it's really important now Here's the problem. Here's here's where we turn to something of concern. Monogamous marriage, <coughs> excuse me, is on the decline in the United States. That won't surprise many of you. In part because <coughs> excuse me, it has been eroded from within, particularly by the poor economic prospects of many lower-class men. Nevertheless, it's also threatened from within by the rise of what we might call informal polygamy. Now think about that. The cultural norm where sexual partnering has shifted away from the constraints and responsibility and sacrifice of marriage and shifted toward what people ironically call the pure relationship or liquid love in which sexual pairings are more and more fleeting and they're based only on passion, not on commitment.
0: Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I, it, it's astonishing to me that um, this has happened in our world, but it has. It is incredible how many people are just going from partner to partner and not even considering marriage. And that's not to mention uh, cohabiting, um, which, you know, uh, we've talked about that a lot. Cohabitation
1: past, but, as a substitute for marriage. Um, <clears throat> so, unsurprisingly what happens when you have this, what he calls informal polygamy, or just based on passion and not commitment. What this yields is a situation where high status men enjoy multiple sexual partners with only a minimum amount of legal requirement for providing for them or for their children. And many low status men find themselves with few prospects. So in a way it's back to the way it was, in the early feudal systems, which is a sad thing. And there's heavy costs that are borne by the poor, by women, by children, for whom an intact nuclear family offers a crucial societal safety net, of but course. they but they don't have yeah. that, you see. And so, and keep in mind that this is the important, I'm gonna quote this now from Heinrich. Nearly all modern legal prohibitions on polygamist practice derived from weird again the acronym of yes. Western educated people. Ultimately rooted in Christian doctrine, that restricted legitimate sex within monogamous marriage. So that's not what he's saying is that's not just a political debate where you're liberal or you're conservative or you're, you know you you you're, uh, you have have fidelity or you don't this is an economic thing. It's a political thing. It's a social thing. And the, the, frankly the results of monogamous marriages are a stronger society and the results of any kind of polygamy legal or illegal, or uh, the kind of promiscuity that he calls informal polygamy, all the societal results of that are negative. Well, Um, Now, you might say, what about the Mormon pioneers? What about the
0: Mormon pioneers? Absolutely. Was
1: there some justification there? And, and, you know, of course the main theory there among LDS people, and it certainly has some merit, is that they were crossing the plains. The men were getting killed. There were women that didn't have a family. They were not attached. Uh, The polygamy was very restricted. It It was governed by the church and by the acquiescence of both the man and the woman. You can say a lot of positive things about that form of polygamy, but only for a short amount of time, just to solve that problem, just to populate the West. I, I find a hard time justifying it beyond well, that.
0: it absolutely brought on huge problems also, especially for the women's vote. For You realize that women in Utah could vote uh, for a long time, and then for, when they... They discovered there was polygamy for 17 years. They were not allowed to vote anymore. Wow! It, there are huge ramifications. Is of that this.
1: right? So, more, is it yeah. true that women were the, voted first in Utah, anywhere in the nation? Right. But then, because of the restraints or restrictions placed on,
0: po- because of polygamy, because yeah. of
1: polygamy, they there was 17 yeah. years yeah, they were it was able a to vote. Huge, wow.
0: huge thing in, in the history in the church. But uh, we don't have time to cover that, obviously. Um, there are so many, so many issues involved with that, and, and it's sad and interesting, and um, there were some great examples and some terrible examples. And, but you know,
1: Linda, it is interesting. I mean, you were telling me about this, that many of the, the early suffragettes in the, in the LDS or Mormon society were polygamist wives, and one of the reasons they had time to do it is because they They're, didn't have a lot of time with their husband. They, B. Wells said, B. Wells, you know,
0: <laughs> she was the sixth wife, um, and she he built her a little house. And it's true, a lot of these men had money and means and so on, and they could care for these people and many children. But she, she was, uh, one part of the book, she was sitting thinking, I really miss my husband because I don't see him very often, but, you know, I would never have been able to accomplish all this that I have done. She was magnificent in the movement to get the women's vote uh, reinstated in Utah, and, and, and actually instated in the first place, but she wouldn't have had time to do that had she had to deal with the husband.
1: Now let me speak for a minute uh, as a man and say that many of the things we read about the problems that were caused by polygamy and even what some of what we're reading today about the economic and social penalties that societies pay for having forms other than monogamy we're often thinking about what it did to women and how unfortunate and how unfair and how, how bad it was for women. And of course that's true and on many levels. Yes. But I want to say how awful I think it was for men. I think men who were involved in polygamy in our own society here, but also across the world pay a huge emotional price because the kind of, <clears throat> the kind of relationship that we all want to have with one other person in a monogamous marriage where where there's synergy, where there's commitment, where there's complete fidelity, where there is for want of a better word, synergy where, where one plus one equals three. The, the total is greater than the sum of its parts because you complement each other and you compensate and for each other yeah. and, and that and, and a person in a polygamist relationship man or woman forfeits the opportunity to have that and um, it's funny this this subject could, should come up now Linda because we've just uh, last night we're having I was gonna say a discussion but let's be honest it was an argument <laughs> <laughs> about is it okay to agree to disagree
0: <laughs> yes, we did, and I think all of you listeners will agree with me. Yes, it is just fine to, agree no, to no, no,
1: disagree. No, 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 Linda. You, you, I have to tell you, Linda says that, but she means it in a different way. What? I, yeah. Oh, I here's do. what I think you mean. Okay. Uh huh. <laughs> or I'll rephrase it. Here's what I mean. Um, it's okay to disagree in most relationships, and it's okay to disagree temporarily in a marriage where you're striving for unity and for equality and for oneness and for synergy, but you better not let that last too long or or extend into things that are important because the theory is, and we believe this, that if, if you're communicating well enough and if you're listening well enough, and if you're appreciating the other person's point of view well enough, you will be able over time, to come to a consensus and it will be better than what either of you started with because it will include the perspective and the viewpoint and the emotion of the other person
0: well and what we finally came to last night was we should you should have done something I should have done something we should have worked this out before we started and we wouldn't have had this big disagreement and I think that's so true but in, in and according to what you're talking about here today, as far as uh, polygamy and monogamy, I think monogamy is the only place you can have a truly intimate uh, relationship exactly. with any other person. Exactly. And it it really is interesting. Everybody has to work this out on their own. But um, and you know it it is fine to disagree about what color you're going to paint the kitchen. You know, uh, that's fine. This was...
1: (laughs) And if you have that disagreement, man, just give up and let her (laughs) choose the color. Come on!
0: Right. (laughs) But if you've already fallen into something when one partner thinks the other one did something wrong or whatever, um, it's really important to work that out because sometimes you... I think sometimes you can agree to disagree.
1: Well, and you said the main... Well, you can temporarily and you have to because that's... In fact, let me say it this way. Here's some, here's some uh, moral support for those of you who tend to fight and argue, uh, as we do, okay? If if you are committed, and if you have the long-range goal of oneness and of coming together and of synergy, then you can look at every disagreement you have as a source of learning, a source of understanding the other person better, a sort of resolving, a, a kind of... Let's get into this far enough to really understand. You can use techniques. One of the best ones is, it just in your, in your arguing or your disagreeing, have the rule that you can't make the next point that you're just dying to make until you can restate what your partner just said, paraphrase it back to him or her in a way that he, him or her will say, that's right, that's what I'm saying. Now you can make your next point, point. and pretty soon you're listening and you're working toward this thing, which as you so rightly point out, Linda, it leads to intimacy, it leads to growth, and we're out of time.
0: We are Let's out wrap of time. Up. Wow, I, I, thank you for joining today because this is something we're mulling over in our minds. We hope that you'll, uh, I, we've given you a couple of things to think about today and remember that it's okay to disagree.
1: And give <laughs> give credit to the medieval Christian church, which was the one that essentially created a new norm which led to monogamy throughout the western world
0: amazing hope to see you next time on iris on the road bye bye